Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Come to you from underneath the peach blossom. It's time for an episode of Be Awesome. Find positivity throughout your life and work. Just like our mascot rooster, Steve the Jerk. Hello, Be Awesome listeners. This is an action-packed day here. We are on episode 31, just a couple hours after episode 30 with Jared. And I am lucky enough to have Colonel Arthur Athens with me. And a little backstory with him. I have been stalking him for the last number of months. I heard him speak at a keynote in Orlando, Florida at uh, Association uh, International ASBO. And uh, really took a liking to what he was saying in his message. And then, as luck would have it, saw him in Colorado a couple months ago and asked him to do a podcast, which he's never done. So this is his first podcast uh, ever, which I'm so honored that I get to be that person. And uh, tried him in Ohio, and here we are in Ocean City, Maryland. Uh, his wife, Mrs. Athens, is sitting here with us, and hopefully maybe you can join in any, any, any tidbits of information she wants to share. But uh, welcome, Colonel Athens, for, and thank you for making the time to sit with me today. Thank you, Josh. It's uh, it's a pleasure to get to see you once again. We have <laughs> run into each other quite a bit the last couple of months. Um, you know, one of the things that I think defines me to some degree is my upbringing and my experiences. So I'll share a little bit about that uh, with you. Uh, I grew up on Long Island outside of New York City. Uh, I spent my whole life there until I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. My, my dad was a manufacturing manager and just an excellent leader, and I learned a lot watching him and listening to him and learning from him. My mom was a homemaker, and her support of uh, everything I did was, was crucial. I also went to a high school that was very diverse, uh, ethnically, racially, economically, etc. And I think it gave me a great appreciation for the diversity of people that are out there. And if you're going to lead, you have to understand. You have to understand people. Went to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and then uh, chose to go into the Marine Corps from there. 25% go Marine Corps, 75% go Navy. The Marine Corps is particularly attractive to me because of their emphasis on leadership. That's what I enjoy. And. I felt it was going to be a good fit there. Spent 30 years as a as a Marine. Uh, my last 15 years, I've been the uh, at the U.S. Naval Academy, first in a chair teaching leadership position, and then as the director of the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership, named after Admiral Stockdale, a tremendous war hero from Vietnam, a POW prisoner of war for about seven and a half years in, in Hanoi. Along the way, I uh, met my wife Misty and. Uh, her brother was in my same class, same company at the Naval Academy, and that's how that how that occurred. And then also after uh, we got married, there were children that seemed to continue to come, and we have ten of them, six boys and four girls. And as I normally have people ask me the same questions all the time, they're all mine, they're all with the same wife, and we do know how it how it happens. And, uh, and I left the Stockdale Center just recently in December of 2018, primarily to focus on speaking, consulting, and coaching in a more independent role to give me a little bit more flexibility to, to get around and, and, uh, and do that. So if I had to think of the three things that define me, it would be my faith, my family, and my investment in leaders. That's kind of what I'm about, and 
uh, love all three of those aspects of my life. Well, that's, that's great, and thank you for sharing. And we'll get right into one of the things, but I have to say, are all the kids grown, all 10? We have one that's still at home who's finishing up. Uh, as a matter of fact, today was her last test at the uh, Anne Arundel Community College just north of the Naval Academy. She's going to go into nursing, so she did all her prerequisites at, the, uh, at that school, and she'll be moving on to a uh, nursing school uh, probably in January. So trading in the bus keys for maybe a sports car for the two of you when you when you yeah, guys are empty nesting. Car, but, but <laughs> we actually missed the fifteen passenger van that got us around because that uh, that was something that was unique about us. Yeah. I remember when we lived in in New York. I was at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy as the commandant there, and one of our sons was in the local high school, and it was a pretty wealthy area that was on the outskirts of the Merchant Marine Academy, and there would be. BMWs and Mercedes and pretty pretty nice cars in the in the student parking lot. And every once in a while he'd get to drive the 15 passenger van to school. And all those that had the fancy cars were all going, hey, but you know, that's cool. Can we drive with you in that? And then for the prom there, he got one of those rotating disco balls, put it in the 15 passenger van. Had it rotate, and that was the hit of the. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, when your parents are driving, and it's like, oh, mom and dad. And then when they're driving it, it's the party wagon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, so yeah. the so disco balls it. are spinning. That's great. That's great. Uh, um, so, you know, one of the reasons why I was I was kind of wanting you to do this podcast is that I, I sat in your in the audience, and in Colorado specifically, and you, you talk about selfish and selfless, and you make a, a really good analogy of that. You've got some really great examples that I, I think the world needs to hear some of that and, and, and understand it, because I think a lot of people don't even know the, the difference between the two if you were to ask, you know, the true difference and what that all means. So if you don't mind sharing that, that would be a great starting point for us. Sure, Josh. Well, I just have been around an awful lot of organizations and a lot of leaders, and that incorporates the military, corporate, nonprofit, academic, athletic, and the separator I just keep seeing try to communicate that in different ways. One of the ways is certainly through stories where someone looks very selfish in their leadership and it doesn't turn out so well, and others that look selfless and it's got a great a great result. Um, but I also noticed that in a paper dictionary, which we don't have anymore, we all go to dictionary.com or merriamwebster.com, but in a paper dictionary standard, the, 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 the distance between selfish and selfless in the dictionary, those two words, is, is about less than an inch. And I just thought about, you know, that distance makes all the difference when it comes to how we lead other people and whether those organizations are going to be vibrant and, and really accomplishing above and beyond the given, uh, the given mission. So I've thought about that fulcrum, the seesaw, that, that's one way to, to think about it. I also think about it from the aspect of uh, Velcro and Teflon. So uh, 
Velcro we're pretty used to that connects many of our jackets and things like that and the, the pieces that stick to each other. And then the Teflon is not as well known because I don't think we use it anymore because I think it was cancer causing or something that was on frying pans that allowed the eggs to slip off easily. And I think about the difference of being, okay, if you're a selfless leader, when good news comes in, you're like the Teflon spreading that news out to others, congratulating, thanking others. And when bad news comes, you're the Velcro. You, you take it on and say, okay, what, what can I do differently or, or better? A mentor of mine by the name of General John Sattler, a retired Marine, always uses the Sports Illustrated example where he says, you know, leaders, we have the choice between the big vertical picture on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That's kind of the selfish side. You know, we want to make sure we're the spotlight, we're the we're the highlight, or are we more interested in a vertical picture where we're just a tiny picture as part of a championship team can barely make us out, we're the champions. And that's more selfless. And I work with a number of athletic teams too, and I find that when a whole team can get that that idea in their mind of being selfless, it's absolutely amazing what they can what they can accomplish. So there's a lot of different ways of kind of differentiating the selfish from selfless. But admit, for me, it's at the centerpiece of effective leadership. Yeah, in listening to you with that, um, do you have you seen or have you experienced something or someone that truly had selfish instinct or selfish traits oh, that sure. became selfless? That oh, was that able to that, that 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 saw it, acknowledged it, recognized it, whatever, and then you know, fast forward a year, five years, or maybe there's an example of it of someone that transitioned and was able to do that. Because a lot of times what I see is people get into a place or they're in a spot that they don't think that they can be anything else or can change from who they are or what they are. And I, I, I just thought of that. I'm just like, I don't know anybody. I don't, I don't know that I have an example myself. I didn't know if maybe you did or you had some experience of well, seeing that. Of course, that's one of my hopes as I go around and speak about this yeah. subject is that people would actually, number one, step back and evaluate how they're actually doing in this area. I, a number of years ago, I developed this thing called the Pride Quotient Survey, which is based on no data, no surveys, no science. I just made it up. But it's got 15 elements that you can evaluate yourself on that I think have a direct connection between this selfishness and selflessness. And there are three, three columns, as is true of me, almost never, occasionally or frequently, because I think we all need this reflection to say, well, maybe, maybe it is a challenge. I've seen people change, number one, when there is incredible adversity in their life, and they were very selfish, and that adversity brought them to a point where they realized, yeah, I guess the world isn't all about me, and they actually moved in a more selfless direction. A second category is where someone has been confronted, particularly by a boss, and said, if you don't change that attitude, if you don't change that direction, you're not going to be working here anymore, or, or, or we're going to have to find you a new role because leadership is, is definitely not it as well. There's a, there's a lot of leadership books out there. One is called Good to Great by Jim Collins. that uh, was written you know, over a decade ago. And he was looking at companies that went from mediocre to, to outstanding. And then he was looking at, well, what caused them to do this? And his number one point that he brings forth is what he calls level five leadership. And he defines that as leaders who have personal humility but strong professional will. It wasn't about them, but they were very, very mission focused. 
And that was one of the questions that he brought up. Can you actually change from a non-level five leader to a level five leader? And he said one of the things that has brought people around from really, if he, he uses different words, but from selfish to selfless is the faith, is having an experience that actually transforms you in a way where you realize, hey, this really isn't about me. So I think there has to be some dramatic changes in someone's life to move them I think most people just don't even think about it. They just go day to day and do their normal thing and they think everything's okay. It is one of the advantages if it's done right is the 360 evaluation where you're not just getting evaluated by your boss but by your peers and your subordinates because a lot of times that will show things because people can be very good at convincing their boss how selfless they are and you know how they're, they're really part of the team. The people that are on the adjacent sides and the people below them often see it very differently. So that 360 can sometimes bring forth, hey, there are some problems here. And then, then it's a challenge to change. I mean, our natural instinct is to be selfish, <laughs> for it to be about us. I mean, we've seen enough with the, the children. You, you see this in early. We didn't teach them to be selfish. You know, that's what we're trying to actually prevent. But it's absolutely natural. Yeah, and, and just to touch on, because I've, I've brought it up on a, a couple of episodes, what you're referring to with the Jim Collins, which Dude Solutions, the, the day job that I have, um, we were all required to read that going back 2004 when I started. It's the mirror in the window, and, and that's a um, another way to look at, you know, if something goes well with your team, you know, look out the window sure. to how they did, and if, if something goes poorly, the first thing you should do is look in the mirror, and I associate that with people that every morning you got to wake up, you got to look at someone, and that's yourself, and you got to see what kind of day do I want to have? Do I want to have a day that's about me or do I want to have a day that I look away from this? Because you're spending the majority of your day not looking in a mirror. If you are, you've got some other issues that we won't, we won't, we won't get into this. Well, actually, the window and mirror, that, that's enough to me. That's another example of that selfless, selfish that you just talked about. Yeah. And, uh, and, and one of the things that I, so I asked that question in, in an interesting way, thinking about myself in my keynotes, there's, there's the most powerful slide that I have is one of my son, my, my 12 year old son, who is just, he's just a phenomenal young man. Uh, he's caring, he's kind, he's polite, he's sincere, he's always looking. I spend so much time on the road that he's always looking at how he can help his mom when I'm not there. And I came home, uh, uh, this was two, almost two years ago, and Amy said, who's been my, one of my best friends since she was 12, uh, know each other really well. She said, I'm going to show you something, but you have to promise not to get mad. And I'm sure in your relationship all these years and everything you've gone through, that's never happened. But typically when your significant other says, you have to promise not to get mad, we're going to get mad. Um, it's just, a, it's just, that's a given. And I said, oh, no promise, I won't. And she showed me a picture. And it was a picture of our, at the time, 10-year-old son on the roof of her fairly expensive SUV with a metal shovel shoveling off the snow on the roof of her car. And I remember thinking immediately, you know, that knee jerk of, oh my God, I can't believe he did that and being, you know, having that, that upset, which I'm not supposed to have. But that got taken over really quick with pride. I was so proud of my son because he took the time to think that the snow had to come off the roof of the car and he was going to get it off the roof of the sure. car one way or the other. And the only way he knew and the only tools he had was that metal shovel and himself. And then I felt failure in myself as a father and as a leader because I never showed him the proper way to clear that snow off the roof. And I always say as leaders, we have to, we have to do a self-check on things like that because 
did we provide the right tools? Did we provide the right guidance? Did we provide our team with what they needed to get the job done? And what they were, and is it what they did that might be the wrong thing? Is it really the wrong thing? Did they really try to do the right thing but just didn't have the right tools and skill sets? And that falls, falls on us. And I find that's a failure with, with many people that are in a selfish mindset because they have that tunnel vision on themselves and they have to have this, this wake up. You know, something has to happen that triggers to say, hey, you know what, I need to do things, you know, a little bit differently or I need to do things um, in a different way. Um, would you mind sharing the baseball story? Uh, oh, sure. Because I, I was I, I was trying to do a search the other night thinking about it. I'm like, what was his name? What was his name? I've heard it three times. But that's a phenomenal example and something that I don't think the majority of the world is, is aware of, even though I'm sure it was on ESPN and everything else, and I haven't watched SportsCenter in 10 years. Josh, you got a good memory, actually, for even thinking that there was a baseball story there. But, I, but it is one of my favorite stories about selflessness. Um, I, 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 I played lacrosse in high school. I played at the Naval Academy, and I've coached for many years in that sport. So I'm not even a big baseball fan, necessarily. But this particular pitcher, Doc Halliday, was, uh, was his name. He was pitching for the Philadelphia Phillies. It was May of 2010. And, uh, and he pitched a perfect game, and he became the, uh, the 20th pitcher in Major League Baseball history ever to pitch a perfect game. I just happened to be watching the, the press conference that he had after this game, and it was obviously a big deal what, what he had just accomplished, and the press was kind of getting him to try to talk about himself, like, do you know how amazing you are? And he turned it all around back to the team, and particularly his catcher. I remember how he talked about the catcher calling the pitches so well during the game. And then he highlighted his first baseman, who had made this pretty spectacular out to save the perfect game in the in the ninth inning. So I just I kind of made a mental note of it. I, I wasn't familiar with him. I didn't follow the Phillies or anything like that. Then I learned in October of 2010, he pitches a no-hitter in the Major League Baseball playoffs. And he becomes only the second pitcher in Major League Baseball history ever to do that. And the one before that, 2010, was in 1956. So um, I, I ended up pulling up the press conference after his, uh, after his accomplishment in that same year. And I found out he did the same thing. He talked about the team the whole time. So I got very, very interested in what seemed like a unique so I found out through some research that he had um, bought a Swiss watch for everybody on the Phillies back in May after he pitched the perfect game. And then I was curious. I found out what kind of Swiss watch it was. I found out what the price was. And it was about $800 a pop for him to buy the watch. And, you know, in my mind, okay, he bought the watch you know, for the players. I get it. Now, I learned he, he bought it for the players, the managers, the bad boys, and then everybody in the front office. IT people, the marketing people, everybody got a Swiss watch from Doc Halliday. So I, I, uh, I then learned one more fact, and that is, is that he presented the watch in a box that had the date of the perfect game, the name of the individual he was presenting it to, which I thought was unique in itself. He didn't even attach his name to it. It was their name, the date of the perfect game, and then the inscription, we did it together, thanks, Doc Halliday. And it, to me, those final words grabbed it all. You know, we did it together. Like, it, it's not just me. It took the whole team to make this happen, not just the team with a uniform on, but everybody in the back, back door areas and the front office and every place else. And then he said thanks, which we don't do enough. We, we, don't, we don't say thank you. And so he encapsulated just a very powerful story. 
I then continued to follow him. He retired from baseball, was very interested in flying, so he got a private pilot's license. And then in December of 2017, he was flying this very unique plane that he had bought, and it went into the Gulf of Mexico and killed him, and he left a wife and two children. And the next day or the next couple of days, the tweets that came out about him were absolutely incredible. They, it was this common theme of selflessness, of humility, of looking out for others before himself. And, and it was clear that his impact had been tremendous within the Phillies organization, as well as other teams he had played for, the community, his family. So he's a, he's a remarkable person. And I think if we are going to be selfless, one of the things we need is we need examples like that to look at and go, well, see, it's possible. It's possible to be really, really good at what you do, but it's still not be about you when it comes down to the bottom line. So that's why I love that. Yeah, it's it's a great story. It it hit home. I was listening to it, and the, you know, you know you make the funny you made the comment about the uh, the IT guy, and he gets the watch, and he says, "What what the heck is this? Why did I get this?" And then he takes about a brief second. He says, "Yeah, you know what? I couldn't I couldn't have got we, he couldn't have got that no hitter without me him being able to get his email and be able to do all his exactly. his homework and studying and all that stuff." And and that's such so pivotal. And and people as as companies grow and as we're in a we're in such a really exciting time in business where kids are going to college today to study a profession that'll actually be obsolete by the time they graduate, right? The life is moving at such a rapid rate and we have so many different roles and new roles and new opportunities and new ideas and all this stuff that one person can't handle it. They can't manage it. It's, you know, for us, this is going back when I started in 2004, you know, I was a salesperson. And if you went back five years prior to that, a salesperson was responsible to sell, to make phone calls, prospect, to to provide uh, information, to do an overview, to do a, uh, a detailed um, showing of the solution, to put you together your proposal, to sell that to, to sell that opportunity, and then give them to someone that was going to take care of that. Today, you have a team member that's going to do the. the, the Grunt work, the, the the initial dialing, the prospecting, the cold calling. You have a marketing person that's going to do the advertising and do, you know, the trickle email campaigns and, and doing the social media because we have to have social media folks. Then we have an app. We have a solutions engineer that's actually going to show the solution. And then you have your account executive that's actually doing the sales process and doing the best practice of what to do. And then you have a client success manager. So you have just in that piece, without talking about programming and developing the solution, writing a bill, paying the rent, doing all these other things, you got eight, nine, ten people on your team. And if there's a breakdown on one link of that, no matter how trivial you might see that person's role might be, it could be your front gatekeeper that answers the phone, that's sitting there that you want them to answer with a smile every time that someone calls. That's important. And most of the time people overlook that. Um, and I think that that's just something that I, I see such a need for today because there's so many good companies. I, sadly, Jim, we're here in Maryland uh, at Ocean City for a Maryland DC ASBO conference that you're going to be giving the keynote here in 30 minutes. Um, but sadly, the Jim Collins book, his first paragraph opens up with, why are there so many good schools? Because there's so few great ones. You know, these guys are challenged with because I think in a lot of aspects, education as a, as an organization, as a business, what it is, they don't have the team building, they don't have the education. They have someone like you to come in here and open their eyes to this. This is huge. This is something that can make a difference in the way people see things. Um, 
touching one more piece on that. So let's say you have a selfish CEO. A selfish CEO likes to drive you know, expensive cars, have nice houses. It's all about them. Large organization. As that flows down, is it just natural that people are going to follow that selfish mindset? Is there a way that is, is it possible to have selflessness throughout that, that organization? What's your, your thoughts on that? What a great question. Actually, the most common question that is asked by graduates of the Naval Academy back to leadership folks that have taught in the classroom is, I got a really interesting boss right now, and he's he or she is egotistical, uh, you know, very hard to work for. You all said something in the classroom about that. Could you repeat that? That's, you know, they they remember being taught about it a little bit, but now they're in the reality of it. So I think it's a fairly common thing that can be out there. What I always tell them is, number one, you, you've got to be the stopper. Like, you, you can't allow it to continue to flow down for the people you're responsible for. You, you can't change the whole world, but, but you can have a pretty big influence on the little world you've been, a, you've been assigned. So that's one thing, is don't pick up the same habits and think that's, that's the right way to go. Number two is, is that you've got to be ready to take on some arrows that are probably going to be shot towards your people that you're going to have to get in the way for to protect them from some of that kind of behavior that's, you know, that's, that's up above. Three is, is that can you actually have any impact on those above you? It's hard, but it's possible. Um, I think two key, keys to that are, um, number one is a professional excellence that you show, that you have a reputation of being worthy to be listened to. And number two is, is having a personal relationship with some of those folks to maybe have that opportunity to have a conversation. But it's really hard. I mean, when you're looking upwards and you're saying, I'm going to try to change my boss, who's you know, the most selfish person I've ever seen. Now, in the military, a lot of times you don't have the flexibility to say, well, I'm going to leave the organization. You know, that, that you're under a contract or you're under some kind of obligation. But a lot of organizations, you're not. And I think if your values don't align very well, you have to think real hard if this is really the right place for me to, to be in. But as I tell my own children, there, there's a lot of bad bosses out there. You know, there, there's no perfect organizations. There are no perfect leaders. So there, there's always going to be that kind of tension that's that's there. But you be the kind of selfless leader that people are going to look up to and say, that's what I'd really like to be. And I have seen where that selfless leader does have an impact on the person above him or her, where they start acting just a little bit different because of that salt and light that's kind of coming from the, the bottom end. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I, uh, I saw a quote, uh, and I've butchered it a thousand times, but um, I give it as an example to my son when I'm, when I'm talking to him about you know, doing the right thing. And it's something along the lines, if everyone's doing the wrong thing, it's still the wrong thing. You know, and it's, right. better, to be the, it's better to be doing the right thing uh, while everybody else is is, is wrong, sure. just always always look to do right and and don't don't buy into that. You know the biggest challenge that I see a lot of the times that in my own personal experience is you have that selfish leader above you, and we all get into a situation where we go into a career and we have this feeling of of, a, of maybe a natural growth or maybe an expected growth or a next step. Like we're always and this is the one of the things I always tell people: be patient and and look to see what you really want. I never really wanted to be an evangelist, public speaker, and do all the things I'm doing. I was fortunate that this just this naturally happened, and I think it's the greatest thing in the world. But what we think we want is this progression up, and we look up and we see this person behaving in such a way that we believe the only way we can get there is if we do the same thing. Absolutely right. 
and right. we have to figure out how to, to get there right. without compromising our integrity, our work ethic, our, our kindness and our care, and our appreciation for, for opportunity. Yeah, another outstanding point. And I, if I could go back to that when you got one of those bosses up there. The other thing we always do emphasize though to our young folks at the Naval Academy and, and elsewhere is that that bad policy decision-making egotistic approach okay it's there but if it crosses a line where now you're being asked to do something unethical or immoral or illegal that's where the line is whoever that you know whoever that boss is so I, I wanted to add that part in that we yeah. also you know kind of hit um, so anyway I appreciate what you're saying though and and, and I think that you know, this idea of where the trajectory is. That's why I think we have to find role models where we see people. To me, a great example of this is General Peter Pace, who became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, highest ranking military officer in the chain of command, first Marine to ever be in that position. One of the most selfless, humble leaders you would ever come across. And to be able to see that as a young officer and say, oh, so, you know, that, that kind of person makes it and does well, that's terrific. Um, and I, I, there's a ton of examples of, of Peter Pace's actions that show that. But again, that's where wherever our profession is, to see some of those role models, to say, yes, it is possible. I always think of John Wooden in the, in the sports world as a basketball coach, you know, a very, very humble and selfless individual. And the stories are legendary about how he treated his people with kindness and grace and all those kinds of things. Uh, well, 10 national championships and, you know, an 80-something percent win-loss. So when you see someone like that, that then goes back to that, ah, there's a motivation of, yes, that, that is possible. Because it's true, I think a lot of people are kind of blinded of seeing, hey, the only way to get to the top is to run over people. Right. And I just, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, and, and, and when you get there, is it worth it? And, you know, I had a conversation, uh, and I think it was on one of my podcasts. It was on my podcast, actually, with another Marine, with uh, with, with Jason Taylor. Um, and we were talking about, you know, when you get, you know, when you get someplace by running someone over, and it could be something like getting an up. We were talking about getting upgraded to a, a suite opposed to a standard hotel room. And it's like, you treated someone poorly to get it. Is it really, is it really that nice? Is the chocolate really that delicious? Is the pillow really that comfortable because you had to mistreat someone to sure. get it? It's not worth it. I'd rather sleep out on the street for the night sure. and, and be That's happy. That's what the Marine said, right? Yeah. He'd rather yeah, sleep yeah, out yeah, on the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> he's, he, yeah, he, 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 slept some, he slept in some uh, pretty, pretty interesting places. He was actually one of only um, two Marines that's been back to Beirut since the bombing of the embassy. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a, an interesting guy. He's a, a great, a great friend and, and someone that I care deeply about and gave me his, uh, gave me his time to do a, do a, a, a podcast title entitled embrace the suck. So, um, but, uh, one, one or two more things, cause you, I know you got to get ready for this. Um, one of the things that, that I wanted to touch on is the importance of appreciation before I do that. Um, let's, let's do this mentorship. You, you talk about role models. Do you have some mentors in your, you, 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 I'm sure you're probably a mentor to some folks. What are your thoughts on mentors, mentorship? Like what should people be doing? Young folks, especially that might not be in the Naval Academy, might just be getting it. What, what should they look for? How should they look for a mentor? And there's a difference between a mentor and your leader or boss. And what that, what are your thoughts on that? That's well, a pretty big subject there, Josh. Yeah. But, I, but we'll do I'll, it in under 30 minutes. You know, I, I, <laughs> just, just a couple of quick thoughts. One is, I think it works both ways. I, I think the more experienced leader has to be very open and alert to find those younger people to draw them in 
and see if there's a chemistry that works while the young people are looking around. I've never been much in favor of forced mentorship programs. I know, I know some organizations try them. Uh, even the Marine Corps had a pretty extensive one. I'm not sure it really worked the way it was initially intended. I, mentorship is a chemistry thing. I, I don't think you can force that. I, I think two people get to know each other and then they move forward together or they get to know each other and realize this doesn't actually work. So my first point is, is that I think the folks who are potentially mentors need to be looking for the mentees. The mentees should be looking for both ways. Two is some are going to work and some aren't. You can't feel bad about that on either end. You know, it just didn't, we just didn't click. The next thing is I, I think we need a breadth of mentors. You always get concerned about someone who has like one mentor and everything relies on that one person and all the advice is coming from that one direction. I've been fortunate over the years that I've had pastors and coaches and, you know, more senior military leaders and, and others. So I've had a breadth of input for decisions that I was going to make or thinking about my career and the rest. So I think mentorship is very important. I, I, I think there are six main building blocks to developing a leader, and one of them is definitely that mentorship. I think it's very, very hard to continue to progress as a leader in a, in a positive way without some of that outside influence of those who can give you some, some thoughts. You can call, email, text, whatever, and say, I'm you know, facing this situation, what do, you, what do you think? And certainly, you know, a boss can be a mentor to somebody, but again, I think it's worthwhile to have some that are outside the organization as well, because you're going to be in situations where the boss may be part of the thing you want to talk about, and then it's helpful to have those that are outside. But I'm a big, I'm a big advocate. Of course, some people differentiate Mentoring and coaching, where coaching is more specific to a skill set, mentoring is broader. That's great. I mean, there's different definitions, but this idea of someone who's further up the ladder, who reaches back to help pull you up the next rung, absolutely essential. Yeah, you just you, you just hit it perfectly um, because coaching is being used so much in business today, and it's it's a it's it's a leader. You know, you talk about. Startups with player coach leaders, and we talk about leaders being more coaches than, than they are bosses, and all of this. And sadly, sometimes I get into conversations where people will tell me their mentor, and their mentor happens to be their direct report. And I try to say that's really not what you want. I'm very fortunate that actually I have I have four what I would consider mentors that I can call at any point in time of the day, uh, a day or night email, and just say, Hey, I'm dealing with this. I'm going through this. And sometimes I actually will use more than one of them or sometimes all of oh, yeah. them Absolutely. for collective advice yeah. not that i think any one of them is wrong but just getting because they're all four of them are are, are different all sure. four of them have different um attributes that i i want to take uh, i'm selfish in this standpoint that i want to take the best of all four of them right. and bring it into me right. so i might want a little piece of every one of what they say and give me the advice so that it's a collective understanding where which direction I want to go in or what I want to do so uh, I appreciate you I mean you've hit you've hit the nail with all of I, I didn't even set this up and you were you were you're knocking it out of the park um, I want to close with appreciation uh, this is one of the biggest parts of be awesome and, and one of the biggest parts of that I got into public speaking was the first time that I ever did a keynote was to recognize someone important in my life that I never got to say thank you to which is my grandfather uh, he packed his one suitcase that sits at the bottom of my stairs at my house. Um, and my grandma packed one suitcase, my mother and my, my uncle, on May 13th, Friday 13th, May 1966, to move here to give 
generations a greater opportunity, not for him, because he was just a custodian, as I refer to it. He was the best custodian. He always said, whatever job you do, make sure it's the best job you can do. And, um, you know, but growing up somewhat ignorant and stupid and not thinking, um, I looked at him as, you know, I loved him. There was no doubt about it. I cared about him. But I never looked at the value and what he did and how much sacrifice he made and never got to truly say thank you. And so for me, I live with that every day. And I, I don't want anybody to live with the lack of saying thank you. And I, I do that not just for um, reasons that they should do that before someone dies or something else, but just because it's the right thing to do. Like, And I always say I appreciate you. That's my that's the way that people know me. They say, hey, you know, when they hear that, they say, oh, Peach, he, you know, he, he, he appreciates me. That's, that's cool. I appreciate it. And I try to make sure that I don't leave any stone unturned, that I tell people that I appreciate them. And, you know, you, you touched on it. I mean, same, you feel the same way. What, what draws you to feeling that? Is it just the leadership mindset? Is it something that you wanted to feel that you, maybe you didn't get? What, what is that? So, number one, I, I think you're right on with the, the importance of appreciating other people and saying thank you. As a matter of fact, it's one of the elements that I think that helps us to be selfless is to be more focused on who can we say thank you to and who can we appreciate, kind of back to the good to great open mm-hmm. window of, you know, of what goes on. So um, I, I guess one of, one of my favorite stories about appreciation that I'm actually going to share this afternoon, I think, um, is, is this story about Captain Charlie Plum, who was a, uh, was a naval aviator, 1964 graduate of the Naval Academy. 19 May 1967, he's flying off the USS Kitty Hawk, an aircraft carrier, 75th combat mission. Five days, he's going to go home, and, uh, and he launches for a mission over North Vietnam. Surface air missile hits his hits his aircraft. Both he and his uh, his backseat uh, uh, naval flight officer eject. So Plum comes down with his parachute from the ejection, gets captured, brought up to the Hanoi Hilton, which became kind of the infamous prison camp where Admiral Stockdale actually was one of the senior senior leaders there. And Plum, instead of going home, gets to spend almost the next six years of his life as a, as a prisoner of war. So he comes back uh, when the other POWs in 1973, and he's eating in a restaurant with his, uh, with his wife in Kansas City. And a, uh, a young man comes up to their table and uh, points at Charlie Plum and said, you're, you're Plum, you, you were on the USS Kitty Hawk. Uh, you, you were a fighter jock. And I remember you got shot down and you ejected it. looking at him going, how does this guy know all this about me? So he finally says, how do you know all that about me? And the young man looks at him and says, uh, sir, the day you got shot down, I packed your parachute. So Plum is now starting to think about this down in the bowels of the aircraft carrier, these young sailors that are down there folding the parachutes every day, packing them up, setting them down the line to be put on the pilot. They don't know who it's going to be. They don't know if it's ever going to be used. But diligently doing it. Next thought that came to Plum was, you know what? I probably passed that young man on board the ship during our deployment. I don't know how many times. Never said hi to him. Never asked him what he did, where he was from. Never said thank you to him either. And so all this is going through his mind, and there's this extended pause. And finally, the young man grabs Plum's hand, starts shaking it violently, and said, "Sir, I guess it worked." <laughs> you know. And Plum smiled and said, "It, it sure did." 
And one of the questions that Charlie Plum always asks people he works with is, so who, who packs your parachute? And, uh, and I think when we have that mindset, and I start with a thankfulness to God for all he's done for me and my family, and then I move to my wife, Misty, and then I move to the children. And I, and, but I'm very open to looking around saying, who did pack my parachute? Because none of us accomplish anything by ourselves. Nobody does. And the more we're aware of that, I think the harder it is to be selfish. The more we think it's about us and we go talented, we are without disappointment. No, that's God-given. That's done because that person invested in you. All those things together make for a saying, who do I say thank you to today? Because a lot of people pack my parachute. It's always at Thanksgiving. I try to think. music <laughs> chiming in for lunch and getting ready for queue you up i think we're we're just about out of time i i appreciate you i appreciate um your mission now sharing uh what you do with, with audiences like asbo and others it sounds like you get some incredible you're going to speak with police officers and fire chiefs and if people want you to speak you know is there a way to get a hold of you is there something we should you know, should i put should i put the email address on yeah you can uh, put my email address yeah. on it. it's funny because yeah. i don't Things have moved so quickly. I left the Naval Academy in December, December 31st, 2018. I, mean, I don't even have a business card. All yeah. I do is, is we've just been traveling and trying to get, you know, an important, I think, an important message out. So at some point, I've got to catch up a little bit and do some of the other things that go with it. But right now, it's been kind of just a fast and furious event. But, um, but my email address would be fine. Okay, I will put that on my website. I'll put that on the podcast. I appreciate you coming. Great to meet you. Uh, it's always great to see, you know, couples and families that have uh, endured the tests of time and kids and 40 everything years else. Worth. That's 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 amazing. And to many many more years of uh, German happiness and maybe not another 15 passenger van, but I mean maybe one for old times' sake. Who knows? Um, yeah, the, there you go. Oh, great. Well, guys, listen. I appreciate you. Get, get yourself ready, get yourself some lunch, whatever it is you get for the next 20 minutes that you've, uh, you've got. Hope, I'm sure our paths will cross again. I'm sure, and, I, and I'm glad of your persistence to say, <laughs> let's do this. And you made it happen, so I appreciate yeah. you as well. <laughs> as a salesperson, the answer is no until you say yes. So i gotta keep it, I got to keep it going. But uh, be awesome, listeners. This will do it for episode 31. Uh, as I say in every episode, appreciate you for what you do. And you're, you're taking the time to listen to me out of a 700,000 podcasts out there. You, you decide to take the time to listen to this. And hopefully you're continuing to get some stuff out of this. Um, if you do a rating and review, I've got T-shirts, I've got hats, i got coffee mugs. No one does one without getting something uh, because I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And uh, the super awesome t-shirt, $3 of every shirt's going to the School on Wheels of Massachusetts. Hoping to give them a nice little check here uh, June 19th. So go on our website, beawesome.com, and be sure to shop, and I'll get those shirts out for you. Uh, Pre-order is good until June 5th, and we're releasing on June 19th. And remember, to be awesome, you got to do awesome. Have a great day. 27 seconds. All right.